Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Kate Hamilton Health Podcast. So today was a real moment for me. I had a chance to sit down and chat with Brezzy, the one and only Brezzy, Niall Breslin. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know who Brezzy is, he is an Irish musician. He is a former Gaelic football player and he is um, a former Leinster rugby player also. He's best known as the lead singer of the band The Blizzards, but these days Brezzy has been focusing his energy on making an incredible difference in the area of mental health. So he's currently undertaking his PhD and he holds a master's in mindfulness-based interventions. He is the host of the Where Is My Mind podcast, which is a multi-award winning podcast and fantastic, well worth listening to. Uh, he is the co-founder of the mental health charity A Lust for Life, which now focuses very much on early, inter- early intervention through their schools program, where they're teaching young people the skills to look after their mental health, basically. Um, he's also a speaker and an author, and I'm sure I'm forgetting so much more. He is literally like the ultimate high achiever. Um, but as you'll hear in the in the um, the podcast in the conversation, he doesn't really believe in the word or in the word achievement or achieve yeah high achiever, and he will talk a little bit about that. But anyway, we cover we spend a lot of time in this episode really talking about early intervention and talking about mental health uh, for kids. And, you know, things that we can do to help our own children and, you know, within schools, what they're trying to do to help our children in school and just build the tools to deal with this new stressful life that we live in. And so it was a really, really fantastic conversation. We also talk then a little bit, we focus in the second half of the conversation a little bit more on ourselves and what we can do to... um, safeguard our own mental health and kind of good he gives really good strategies that we can put in place to just really look after ourselves a bit better and um lower our anxieties and kind of really like i said safeguard our mental health and it was came for me at a really good time when i just really needed to take a step back and look after myself a little bit and a lot of the strategies and and things that he says have very much resonated with me i'm going to go and sit down now and plan out how i'm going because of course i love to plan uh, plan out exactly how i'm going to make these changes in my life to help look after myself a little bit better so i really hope you enjoy the conversation um just as much as i did and his his story is just fascinating which he shares as well of how he ended up going from being um basically a professional rugby player to being a mental health advocate and everything in between so enjoy the episode and i will chat to you all soon brezzy thank you so much for coming on the podcast today my pleasure i really really appreciate it um so anyway when i was researching you right so for this conversation it took ages so like because you're literally the ultimate high achiever so i suppose my first question to you is how do you man how have you managed to do it all like do you ever sleep <laughs> um i have a weird thing with achievement i i used to think achievement is what makes me happy and yeah. actually i've come to the terms that it really isn't achievement is not what makes you happy and actually society and culture kind of sells that as the thing like you go on tiktok for five seconds when you're sitting in your arse doing nothing and somebody's telling you why are you sitting in your arse and you need to be making money and you need to be doing this all the time and you can get really blinded by that. And I did for years. Um, and like I used to think that 
there was like a pot of gold at the end of it all that that was the thing that would make me happy and connected to the world but it really wasn't so I suppose that was what was driving achievement but then the other thing that I am competitive I have a very I have a very competitive nature I think so I'm lighting something here I'm not setting the, the room on fire um <laughs> I have a very competitive nature and the other thing I was I was raised by my mom and dad not to put myself in a box, like do whatever I love to do, you know, whether that's music, whether that's sport, whether that's academia, don't get kind of pigeonholed by society because society likes to do that. It likes to say, well, you're a musician and that's all you can ever be. You can't be anything else, you know, and it's, I can't make sense of it if you're anything else other than that. And I don't like that. And I don't think any young people should be advised to do that. Um, I think that can really limit people's potential. So from an achievement point of view, I also firmly believe if you're going to take something on, then you have to commit to it. You cannot you cannot take on shit and then half show up to it. Like, that's the thing. So you, you got to make the decision first. Why am I doing this? Yeah. What is the achievement I'm trying to create here? And what's the outcome? And if it isn't strong enough, don't do it. Because then you're just, you're wasting your, your time and you're wasting whoever else's time you're pulling into it. So would you say that like your so your list of different things that you like we'll get into your story now in a, in a minute but all of your achievements as you know in inverted commas is has been your journey of exploring who you are and yeah I think so I think you know I I kind of went on a path that I was I kind of thought I had to go on like you know it was played sport when I was a teenager I was doing okay at sports and then that just naturally became me coming into becoming a professional athlete and then what happens is when you're 17 when you're 18 19 years of age and someone starts saying they're going to pay you to do this in, in terms of your profession mm. everything changes it goes from being this raw lovable thing that you do to something you have to literally live and die by every day everything you do and some people love that I hated it. It took all the love I had a sport out of it. Yeah. And and that's professional sport, you know, and that that was some as I said some people love that. For me it just it just all the kind of rawness and the the kind of the dog that you get from playing sport it was just gone. And I I started to overanalyze, I started to overthink everything I did as an athlete. And um I think that that's the, like I was working with the Westmead footballers at the weekend and I, I was saying go back to that rawness that got you into this in the first place because like you finish a game and you have 14 people video an analysis you have a, the thing stuck to your back to tell you how many farts you let in a game and like it's all just over analyzed I think and like I love sports science but I think it's almost taken that little bit of gold out of sport that you can't measure and um, and that's what got me into sport. And that's why I still love it. Like, I love watching athletes that look like they're actually enjoying what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and they look like this is the greatest privilege they've ever had. And it's it, when you see it, like a, a great example, I always use the Japanese rugby team. Like at the last World Cup, they went there and like they were smiling when they were playing and they were playing the best rugby I've seen any team play in so long. And then you saw Ireland go and they were terrified to make mistakes and terrified to do anything wrong. And they were paralyzed mm. and Japan were the complete opposite. So there's a middle ground there for me. I'm always seeking out that rawness, that that reason why I love doing something. And that's kind of led me back into away from professional sport and back into academia. Because it's a different type of challenge, academia, especially when you're doing things like 
research because you're trying to find an answer to something that doesn't exist yet. And so, so it's a different type of challenge. And I, I love a challenge. It doesn't just need to be physical. It, it could be, it could be mental or, or it could be intellectual, whatever it is. I like getting out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. And uh, so in relation to your story, for anyone who doesn't know, how did you get from rugby player to mental health advocate and everything in between? And um, because from what I know, it's a fascinating story, really. Yeah. It's a long one as well, though. Like, I mean, I, I, I kind of um I started experiencing kind of issues with my mental health at about 13 uh 1993 I think the first I remember 1994 Kirk Cobain died and that had a huge impact on me as a teenager and I I I lived in Israel when I was 13 with my dad who was in the army uh, in the United Nations and there was a, a basically a war a 9 day war when we were there and I was left in the middle of it so I had this kind of whatever you want to call it, post-traumatic kind of stress from it. Uh, but actually, when I did the work with my psychology and my therapy and the years that I had to work on this stuff, it was actually an abusive primary school that did an awful lot of damage. There was a very physically, unfortunately, in our school, there was sexual abuse as well. And in my case, I was physically abused by by some of the teachers, like many of my peers. And that had this long, long impact on me because if you remove the most basic need of a child is to feel safe. That's the most basic need. And you remove that, it will it will have an impact on them. And that, I kind of carried that through my teenage years. And I masked it constantly by being an athlete. I was able to sidestep things. And I was able to not let people realize what was happening. And I was dealing with kind of chronic panic attacks. That was the biggest uh, manifestation of my anxiety. It was it was. Some days I'd have two or three a day. I'd have them in school. I'd have them in classrooms. I'd have them on the pitch. I'd have them everywhere. And then I carried that into my adulthood. And I became a professional rugby player when I was 19, which was very young, especially for my position. And I thought that would fix it. And actually, it just made it worse because then I was I was self-medicating with like Xanax and Valium, terrified I'd be drug tested. And I'd fail a drug test because I'm being taken Xanax. And then obviously just couldn't function as a rugby player doing that. So I retired and moved into music, which kind of felt a little easier because you're kind of expected to be a bit shoegazy and, and miserable, which just kind of suits the musician's brand. Um, so I was able to hide it a little bit. And then it just went on for years and years and years. And I finally just uh, had a, an utter breakdown. And I think that is the one thing I've learned with mental health is you can't outrun it. No matter what you do, no matter what you take on, no matter how hard you train, you can't outrun it. You cannot outrun this. Like exercise is important. But unfortunately, I think we're using it sometimes as a smokescreen to actually dealing with what's going on for you. You know, people who are obsessively trained, it's it's it is it is a healthy thing to do, obviously, to be physically fit and to train and to look after yourself. But if it's at the cost of not dealing with something that's happened to you, it only becomes a literally a smokescreen that you can't outrun. And that's why I always say, you know, people who might train three or four times a day I always go like what are you training what are you trying to out train here and I think that's something that has become very clear to me in, in terms of people who push themselves in in the gym push themselves with challenges Um, I think these are amazing I think they're so important because they give you a purpose they give you a north star but I think you have to also deal with the stuff that might have happened to you so I kind of um ended up I said I had, had, had a breakdown and then I kind of at that point publicly started addressing this this was 10 years ago 
and I wrote in a piece of paper that I'd lose my job and I'd have to leave the country. That was the decision I knew I'd have to make because I'd be ridiculed for what I'm about to say. Uh, I wasn't at all. There was none of that. And I think at that point, Ireland was kind of ready to start addressing some of the shit that a lot of people were dealing with. What and year then, was this, Prezi? That would have been are we now 2023. That would have been 2012 or 2013. Yeah. And um, I wrote my book in 2015. Yeah. And then the... Yeah. I, I think what happened to me was I was so unwell at that point, like I'd lost my hair. It was you could, the, your mental health and physical health are so closely aligned, like they're so intertwined and we often put them on different pages. But um, I, I ended up then going in and getting proper help and dealing with it. And then that led me back into do my master's in mindfulness based interventions, which was what I really felt change my life the the ability to sit with discomfort that's what mindfulness is for me to sit with trauma or whatever it is that's happened to you to be able to sit with it and not be overwhelmed by it is a really powerful thing and then that then led me into my phd which is looking at utterly changing the model on how we look at mental health in terms of our health systems especially with children you know we have a we have children in ireland being put on hardcore medication at the age of seven or eight years of age unmonitored we're, we're getting psychiatrists diagnosing them on, on Zoom from Dubai, diagnosing a child in Kerry. You know, what? how we're treating children now at the moment is human rights violations at the highest order. And we're standing over this as a, as a community and as a society. And it's not good enough. So I, I think for me, it's the PhD is to kind of, if, if we know this doesn't work, what does work? And for me, what works is early intervention. If we can support children early, with the right tools in, I mean, from the ages of five to nine to 10 before their brains develop fully and we can get in there and work with them and then we change everything. And right now uh, the Irish government just doesn't seem to want to do that. Yeah. Um, and that, that I was actually going to ask you about the early intervention programs and stuff later on, <clears throat> sorry, later on. But I think now that we're, um, that we're talking about it, we might just dive into that now. Um, so my background is in primary school teaching. I was a primary school teacher for 15 years. So um, like this really interests me. Um, this is a huge focus now of your um, your your Lust for Life charity, isn't it? That you're trying to get into the primary schools. We are in over a thousand primary schools now. So we are well on our way to being in every primary school by 2024 with evidence-based programs. We've evaluated with UCD and DCU. We basically headhunted the best people we can get our hands on in terms of educational psychologists, clinical psychologists, educational experts, steering committees, parents' councils, teaching councils. We did it all. We basically designed this. And the reason we did it was not just because we believe it's the right thing to do. It's because the evidence tells us that's the thing we have to do. Um, right now, we have a crisis model. So we wait for kids to get to a point of crisis. And then we intervene. But even even then, the intervention is is really bad. You could have a child waiting for two years just to be assessed. Yeah. And then there's another 12 month waiting list to actually get the intervention. And then you get the intervention and that child could see one therapist on a Friday and a different one the next Friday. It is so bad. It is so broken. And the only way you really understand how broken it is, if you unfortunately find yourself in a position where you have to try and get your child help and you realize at that point private public whatever way you want to look at it it's it is it is we're in the same situation here so for me early intervention it's not going to solve everything but it's going to make a massive difference to give young kids the tools to understand that these anxieties and these 
these issues that they face are actually dealable with and there's things we can do and then also what you're doing with that is you're creating a peer understanding with their peers that this is something we talk about this is something we deal with but the other issue with that is something that i keep keep realizing in my work is that teachers are in a really difficult situation now and there, there's too much expected of them. And this is an area that overwhelms them a lot because you do not get into teaching if you don't have that empathy gene. You don't, I don't know any teacher who doesn't have it. Uh, I don't know any nurse who doesn't have it. Where when you leave the classroom on a Tuesday, day, Tuesday afternoon to go home, you don't leave the classroom behind. You bring it with you. If you know there's two kids in that classroom that's really struggling, you bring that home with you and you think about that for the night. And then it starts to overwhelm you and get in on you. Um, so we want to help the teachers as well to figure out what support structures do we need? How do we make this safe and simple? So it's not like so it's basically a Netflix model that we've created where we put the content on. And it's not just mental health. Every other other charity that are working with children can put their programs onto this model we've created. So now what we're doing is we're reaching kids every day, every single day. And now we wanted to start looking at how we can support parents. But even at that you know, I saw I put up a message the other day and a parent was like, oh, it all starts at home. I says, yes, it does. But there's some homes who don't have that luxury where there's they come from deep, deep circles of poverty and inequality where maybe the dad has a drug problem or the mother. It isn't just as simple as saying, oh, the parents have to deal with this. So there's all this complexity with what we do. And it's that complexity that's stopping the government doing anything because they keep using words like complex and oh, it's really complex. The issues are complex. The solutions absolutely are not. Yeah. And are you so is your program for, like a, is like a program, like a little curriculum, like within the SPHE curriculum for the children? Or is it like a training program for the teachers or both? No, it, it is for the children. It is for literally. So it's basically yeah. different. There's different um, programs like there's a mindfulness program and mindfulness for children is different that I would teach for a mindfulness for an adult. For me, mindfulness for children is just it does two things. It gives them the language of emotion so they can describe what it is they're feeling, but it also builds the mind body connection. And and the reason that's important is I say this to kids like I worked, I've written kids books. I work with kids. I say when your mind gets really busy, which it will do, mind gets really busy. Don't use your mind. To, don't use your mind to calm down your mind. It won't. It won't do that. Get into your body. So I always say to a kid, where do you feel it? And they go, oh, what do you mean? I said, where in your body do you feel that that uncomfortable, that anxiety? Oh, in my belly. And now they have somewhere in their body. And I said, the next time you feel anxious, I want to put your hand there in your belly where you feel it. And I want you to breathe into that part of your body with, with your favorite color and just soften that. Just soften it. Don't run away from it. It's it's there. And we're just going to. And you could see them. They're like they're beaming because they're going, oh, my God, I have a solution to this. I have something practical I can do that's simple, that works, that makes me feel that I'm not silly, that I'm not you know, bold or any of this stuff. And you validate their emotion. You don't tell them to get rid of it. You tell them it's here and it doesn't feel nice, but we all feel this. And then you get them where they feel. And that, that's how we would approach mindfulness with children. Then we have things like, like language. How do they speak? How do they navigate? How do they bring empathy and non-judgment to how they talk to their friends and all this stuff? You're teaching five-year-olds, six-year-olds this stuff when their brains are literally like sponges. That is where you do it. Because once you hit 12 or 13 and the brain is kind of 
kind of past the, the kind of the pre-puberty development phase, it, it's a different type of conversation. So it's a malleable place at this point. It is what they call neuroplasticity. You have the ability to actually change how they process things in their brains by intervening. And then the other thing that pisses me off is like you get kind of people with different agendas trying to say mindfulness doesn't work. And there was one there was one big research done in the UK that was plastered all over the media about mindfulness not working for school for primary schools. When you actually read the research, they did it once by untrained people. That's not how we do it. It's like saying, oh, the kids were shit at five aside because we they played for five seconds and they didn't like it. Like it's it, it it's like sometimes they don't want this stuff to work. And to me, my PhD is looking at what we call the market of deviance, where if we have all these kids who are struggling and we have this ability to straight away medicalize them, that's worth a lot of money. And I absolutely don't believe we should be medicalizing children. And I also believe that if if the if the medical model is the only show in town for mental health, we're going to be having this conversation in 50 years time. Now, before anyone jumps down my throat and says, you know, I'm anti anti medical model, I'm not. I'm anti it being the only solution. I'm anti it being the first solution. That's what I'm anti. Because if a child comes in who's anxious, who's after just living through a pandemic of two and a half years of absolute shit shows, where they were told they can't do anything or go anywhere and they have to be really careful, they're naturally going to be anxious and they're naturally going to be overwhelmed. And that's a healthy response to what they've gone through. We shouldn't be medicalizing that. We should be helping them to understand it and giving them functional things to do to deal with it. Yeah, oh, 100%. And like the whole medical model model should 100% be the last resort, especially when we're talking about children. And it's funny, I find from my experience, um, what, what, what you said kind of 12 or 13 is where you kind of is that stealing of that opportunity to kind of get in and really make a difference um, while they're like sponges. I find that, you know, junior infants to second class is a great like they're they're so adaptable to things like this. Any bit of kind of uh, mindfulness or SPHE work, anything on self worth that I've done that I would and self esteem that I would do with them, I find it as they get older. You know, third class probably okay, but fourth, fifth, and sixth class, I feel like even then the kids have really been institutionalized nearly, and we've lost we've lost a bit of it already. Yeah, I, like that is why our program starts at first class. And they go up all the way to sixth class and the programs change. So we've recognized the idea that there is that change in. And then when you hit puberty, it's like a nuclear hormone bomb hits in and then you hate your parents and, you you know, everything changes. So you have to recognizing these phases in development and like early development is that first, second class. And that's how you would talk to them about things like feelings and emotions would be entirely different. How you'd speak to a sixth class about feelings and emotions and it, 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 this is some. This is where you bring in people who who live and die by educational psychology. This is what they do. They understand these phases, and we, as an organization and a charity, have to really, really work hard. You know, I'm really proud of what we've achieved. We're very small, and uh, we're a small charity. We don't want to be a big charity. We 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 want to be able to move fast and work with people, and move past the bureaucracy of taken 10 years to make a decision we can't do that now this is when we have to intervene but those first second class 
they're just magnets for for information and especially when you give them little tools like i i do this these physical cues that you use with younger kids and the physical cue would be for example like you call it a magic a magic trick and they're like absolutely bring it on and it's like putting your fingers together like that every time you get anxious and 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 that every time you do that that's going to remind you of a really happy thing that happened to you christmas or whatever and it's that simple and what you're doing once again is getting them out of their heads where they're thinking and we sh- like the thing that scares me most about the culture where we're at now people aren't asking why are they so overwhelmed because there's been a huge shift even rather you know sadly we're we're seeing 9 and 10 year olds dying by suicide that's never happened before that's never been a, a thing that's happened in culture like we're seeing four or five year olds crippled with anxiety that has never happened before that's not been a thing you know of of course it's happened occasionally but not at the level and waves we've seen now so we need to ask the question is why is this happening what is it that's shifted in culture that is making them feel like this and there's this krishnamurti quote that kind of influences a lot of my work he says it's no measure of sanity to be well adjusted to an insane world and to me, we have to start asking the questions of culture. And this is where the wellness industry really gets under my skin a bit, because the wellness industry keeps telling the individual they have to be more resilient. They have to be stronger. They just need to drink a bit more water. And, and what you're doing is you're completely ignoring the social forces and the cultural forces that are making us feel utterly overwhelmed by the world. And that's the difference. I think sometimes the wellness industry keeps because it's good for business to tell the individual. And yes, the individual does have a certain responsibility to to make sure they're looking after themselves, to make sure they're doing the right things and making the right decisions. But you can't ignore what's coming. And a prime example of that is, you know, I, I read a brilliant essay by a guy called Mark Fisher called The Privatization of Stress. And he, his opening line was that this guy who's got zero hour contract doesn't know when he's going to work one one week to the next, you know, living in Dublin City and, you know, can't afford his rent, can't really eat. And has it and is well qualified. And yet we still tell him you're just not resilient enough. Nobody, you shouldn't be resilient to that because we've created a culture that's made that acceptable. And. That to me is is something I think the wellness industry has has ignored and to its detriment, I believe. And I think, um, as I said, that's not to say we don't take responsibility for ourselves, but we need to actually look at something like neoliberalism, for example. And neoliberalism is a, an economic ideology that basically treats a human being like nothing but a, pro- a piece of productivity. And that's the only way you're perceived. You're not perceived in any other way. If you're not contributing to capital, get out of the fucking way. Or you're run over. And that's neoliberalism. And and essentially what neoliberalism is, is I know this is getting into kind of meatier stuff, but what neoliberalism says to the market is like the government go, the market will fix everything. The market will dictate and we will not have any any say on what happens in the market. That's why we have a housing crisis, because profit has just turned people into monsters and we have children in Ireland, living on the street because of neoliberalism. It's the same in health in America. Like, unless you've got private health care in America, fucking forget about it because it's neoliberalism, because things like housing and health are a human right. 
but now we've made them a profitable business and that's what we're doing and that's why when we look at things like wellness we have to be really careful and um that's the deeper element of of the work that i'm doing within my phd that's so interesting and would you say that like a lot of this you know like as you say the society these society issues like are our children absorbing a lot of this like I, i'm asking like as a parent now like i have three kids my youngest is five my oldest is 13 and he's just started secondary school and i just i feel like he's kind of getting lost already you know what i mean like he's mm. um if everything is so stressful everything is so academic you know he's finding it hard to keep up um, and it's that pressure to achieve that pressure to achieve which you know i just think builds and builds from primary school all the way up into secondary school and then they've stressed out parents on top of it and because they're trying to keep up with society well, what you have as well Kate, is you've, we've created a fear factory for parents like parents are now being told that you have if your child isn't perfectly conventional and perfectly that there must be something wrong with them and and you see the narrative i've my closest friends who are unbelievable parents like they're the biggest hearted motherfuckers you've ever met in your life they just are so kind and empathetic and emotionally intelligent and they're always asking me am i a good parent i was like dude you are you're a great parent and you need to stop wrapping your children in bubble wrap all the time they're they're meant to mess up they're meant to fail they're meant to face adversity it was like in the 80s anytime anyone in the 80s got sick you were putting an antibiotic and that's why our immune systems are probably so shit because we never actually got to use our immune system because every time we got a cold, it was like, oh, antibiotic. And it's the same with the head. You need you need to let the, ch the child navigate the world a little bit and to not succeed and to not always have it their way because that's how they actually build that proper inner resilience. That's how you build it. But parents are now told, no, 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 you can't do that. And... I find that is like Louise, my partner, psychologist, she talks about this a lot. She says you, you need to let them sometimes find a way. But then, you know, you've you've got websites and you have podcasts telling your parents you have to do this and you have to do that. And like if your intention is to be a loving parent that keeps your child safe and shows them what love is, um, I think that needs to be enough. I think that has to be. Yes, your child's going to make mistakes. Yes, they're going to go through difficult periods as are you as a parent. But I feel an awful lot of a child's anxiety is just projected onto them from the anxiety of the, the parent who's like so worried about having everything perfect all the time. And I don't think we should be teaching children that life isn't perfect. Life isn't a straight line. It isn't transient. It's up and down, in and out. And when I learned that as an adult, everything changed. And actually, if you go back to the Buddhist philosophies of mindfulness, now I wouldn't say this with a child, the first noble truth of Buddhism, which is at the core of meditation, is suffering as part of life. It's part of your life. It is, it is not the only part, but it is something we all deal with. Grief, relationship issues, uh, financial issues, health issues. These are all things every human being on earth has always dealt with. But yet we're creating a society that tells us we're entitled not to feel this these things. And we, we all do. And I think... I, I am really passionate about kind of helping children understand that and helping parents understand that. But also a lust for life is now moving our kind of focus to secondary schools. So that's our next kind of action, which is a which of Amanis is a huge body of work um that's gonna require every single ounce of energy we have. But yeah, my my dream is to have a 
a really profoundly strong educational early intervention program from first class up to leaving cert level and That'd have it amazing, to yeah. follow it the whole way that way and also to get rid of the leaving cert because it's a load of bollocks yeah, no, that's another thing I was going to ask you as well, because, you know, I think, you know, you've covered really well, like within the primary schools, what, you know, getting in and really getting kids to talk about feelings and, you know, recognizing what the different feelings are. Um, which I, uh, with my five year old, I can see how that is, you know, it, you know, and they are little sponges and they love to get involved in anything that feels like a game. And then I have a 13 year old who won't talk about feelings, a 13 year old boy who won't talk about feelings at all. And, and um, that would be a real challenge getting into the secondary schools. And I know some kids, all kids are different, but. Um, but it's yeah. also hormonal. I think I think we underestimate the hormonal shift in uh, like I, I, I work and, and, and interview an awful lot of psychologists who deal with teenagers. And it, it is something that is. I think we, we we kind of over, we joke about it or oh, your voice drops and your balls drop and ah, it's hilarious. But actually there is a hormonal shift and anyone who's dealt with any kind of a hormonal shift, it, it can really fuck with your head. Like, and they're probably dealing with that. They have the transition from, from, from um, second from primary school to secondary school. And when I look back at my own life, that's when things started to fall apart for me was literally at that junction. And I always ask myself, what, what was it at that junction where things felt like I couldn't deal with them anymore. What was it? And, and when I look back, I kind of think, yes, I actually, I, I became an adult really. And I didn't want to talk to my parents about how I was feeling. I just didn't uh, because I didn't have the language to describe what I was feeling. Like That's I thought it's terrifying I, for parents. <laughs> yeah. And, but I also didn't know what to say. Yeah. I didn't, I, I always thought I was possessed by the devil. Like there, I felt like there was something living in my stomach. That's what it felt like. But all it was was just crippling anxiety and trying to teach children and teenagers that the physiology of what's happening when you get anxious. I always say this. Your brain is not trying to hurt you. It's never trying to. It's only trying to protect you. It's an alarm system. It's a security guard. That's its job. That's why humans are still here. That's why we've evolved to be the most successful species of all time. Because our brain is an incredibly good alarm system. And that's what anxiety is. Unfortunately, some of us, like me, have a really an alarm system that just seems keeps going off. Even when things there's nothing wrong. My alarm, my head thinks there is. And the more you get used to that, the more it just becomes a an almost a conditioning that you have. So what I always say to people, use the body to turn off the alarm. And that's that's what I do. So when I get anxious, I get into my body, I feel my feet in the floor. I put my hand where I feel anxious and I slow it all down. I start breathing in and you start basically engaging the central nervous system and saying, listen, you bollocks, you need to step the fuck down here because I, there's nothing wrong and you're just getting a little overwhelmed here. And I'm going to. And so I use the body and the breath as the communication to the brain to step down. And when you learn that stuff, you start to also learn there's sometimes you should be anxious and you should be really overwhelmed and you should be scared. That's that's how it works. That's that's how we're still here. And I think trying to teach children that 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 anxiety you experience. And here's the real I heard news talk talking about this two days ago. And the presenter was like, sure, kids are living in the safest ever time it was to be a child. Like, why are they all so anxious? That's complete misunderstanding of human physiology and psychology, because when our brains started to evolve from when we lived in caves, all our threats, every single threat was a physical threat. 
that's so every time we left the cave we always thought something bad would happen we always thought there was a spine crushing lung busting python behind the bush even though most of the time there wasn't but that's how our brains evolved it was always physical when you got back into the cave we calmed down and we were safe and our brains went back to homeostasis that's the brain that's where your brain evolved from that's where my brain evolved from but now our threats are emotional and emotional threats are terrifying because you can't see them and they're ever prevailing. You know, somebody could say something about you in school online. Somebody could make an accusation. Somebody, it becomes emotional. And the problem with the emotional threats is you cannot get away from them. You can't go into your cave and be calm again. You get into your house and you still feel under threat. You go to your bed, you still feel under threat. You get up in the morning to go to school, you still feel under threat. And it's so consuming and so tiring. And so frustrating for young people when they hear people say, oh, you know, you've never had it so good. Like they have too much happening and too much coming at them. And we need to find a way to understand this and, and, and to intervene. And what the do last thing. What do we do for as parents like to, you know, you can't say you can't have you know, your 13 year old, you can't have a phone, you can't. Well, you can, but, you know, realistically. I mean, there has to be boundaries with these things, I think, as a parent. And like, I'm not going to stand here giving lectures to parents. I'm not a parent. I don't know. I just don't know. I, 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 I never speak from a place of hierarchy, like of all this shit figured out. But I think each parent has a, a decision to make. And each parent has a different relationship with their children. You know, some children are very open and some children become very open. Um, but there has to be boundaries. And the boundaries mightn't just be all... I'm limiting you to using a blah, blah, blah. It might be like one of the things I always talk about is when I was 15, I started drinking. And my mum knew there was no way she was going to be able to stop me. And the more she tried to stop me, the more I would go for it. So my mum said, yeah, go for it. And I was like, what? So all of a sudden I wasn't rebelling. I wasn't like, fuck, my mum said it's going to drink. She said one rule. I said, what's that? She goes, every time you go out, you need because my dad was overseas all the time every time you come home you need to sit at the end of the bed and tell me how he got on that night that's the only rule and I'm like okay that seems fair and it was just so I knew I'd never get too drunk because I had to talk to my mum and I also didn't want to get too drunk because I wasn't I was respecting the fact that she was giving me now I'm not telling parents to let their kids drink that's not what I'm saying here it was just the way she framed it with me and then what happened was I just didn't drink anymore. I just didn't want to do it because I was like, yeah. well, I'm not, I'm not rebelling. She took and the cool factor away from us. <laughs> it took the cool and, and it was, but it was my mum just going, listen, and even with phones, I often think like, like my nephew, Billy, who's 10. Um, I would say to Billy, I'll pick you up from school because he loves me picking up. But the rule is every time I pick you up, you need to talk for 15 minutes and I'm not allowed to talk. And if there's any issue he has, it always comes out then. Because I can't, I can't reply to him. I just drive the car and he just talks. And every and if he's anxious about something, it comes out. So when I talk about boundaries, I think if you're going to give your teenager a phone or that starts to happen, there has to be the discussion where like, I need you to be able to con have conversations with me about things that might happen. And then we look at things like porn, which is a massive problem. And, and the acceleration of sexuality where, you know, when I was 15 or 16, I wasn't I wasn't mature enough to 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 enter into big. I just wasn't and I, like throwing kind of kind of sex into the middle of it all. Yeah. I was like, well, I fuck that. I, I like like rejection. 
all the shit that comes with that. So my fear is we're accelerating their development. And I really think it's important to let kids find their space and develop in, in at, at their own pace. And I, I don't think we're doing that anymore. I think they feel the need. And what actually I saw in Greystones, the, a, a great idea where they actually did a peer thing where the, the entire school signed a waiver to say we're not going to get any of our kids' phones. And then all of a sudden, there's no peer support, peer pressure because none of your mates have them. And there's a decision being made across. Now, that's a big thing to do, but... That's such that, a Greystones thing to do. <laughs> it is a very Greystones thing to do. And you know what? Like, it's... it's it's It is... But but that, it takes the pressure off. Yeah. But I do think it's a, it's a difficult time. And so when we, we face into what we're doing with A Lust for Life, one of the things we are doing is we're going to have a youth summit. And my aim is to build an app to ask hopefully every student in Ireland a question, five or sorry, 10 questions that day. So we can actually get a state of the union to figure out where are we here? Because the last thing we need is some outlad in the late, late show saying the problem with young people today is you don't fucking know because no one's asking them. Yeah, and I really want to empower their voice. I want to know what it is that they're dealing with and I want to listen. And then only then do you design intervention. Designing intervention without knowing what the problem is, is the greatest waste of resource and money. So we're we're doing it that way. So we're putting a massive, massive ear and we're going to listen to where we're at with children and what we can do to help them. And yeah, that's yeah. it. It's very hard to know what the problem is when we're still in this kind of developing stage of this whole kind of unprecedented time of, you know, social media is constantly evolving. And I think you made a really good point there, but, you know, like getting it from them, like, you know, and that's the kind of the way I'm trying to parent because like, I'm just, obviously he's my eldest. I'm still trying to figure that out, but communicating to him being like, okay, well, you know, what will we do here? What, what do you think is fair around the rules with the phone? But then also I think it's really important that it's taken off him at a certain time and, and not as a punishment but as a break and that you made that really good point of that always on kind of feeling I remember that as a teenager just being a teenager and how stressful life is and you're surrounded by your peers and other teenagers are mean like you know teenagers are mean to each other in general um but home was always my safe place and I could go in and I put on my little video and my video recorder and I'd watch an episode of friends or sex in the city or whatever you know and switch off and forget about life whereas I think a lot of kids are going to bed with their phones or you know they have no break at all yeah. so for me it's really really important that he gets a time gets time and it's not a punishment oh you, phone's being taken off you it's like no like you don't need to talk to me if you don't want to but like I, I want you to switch off yeah I mean like it's this thing they call the hypervigilant or the amygdala hijack where the part of the brain that we use as you know our, our our fight or flight part of our brain the part of our brain that you don't want to be in too long and you don't want to be in all day you definitely don't want to be in all day because it's absolutely exhausting it's the part of the brain that tells you to get the fuck out of the way when a car is about to hit you, you your brain doesn't go when a car is coming your way it won't go um, i wonder how fast that's going i you know i wonder would it hurt if it hit me you you, you don't you just move that's that's your brain going get the fuck and then you then you think but what's happening now is Young people are, are getting kind of stuck in this hypervigilant state all the time. And it's that's they're exhausted. And you, you walk down any town and you see young kids with two cans of monster just probably to keep them awake because they're so tired because their brain is just so 
on all the time. And, you know, the, like what probably is important. The researches that have been done in this area, like because there hasn't been a hell of a lot of research um, because we're still in this infancy stage and neuroscience as a, a science is still very early. It's a still early science. We're only now starting to look at functioning of the brain and stuff like that. It's not like it's not as an advanced science as other other areas, but like to me, it's not rocket science either. I think if you think about it like this, if you if you if you put a kid in a position where they always feel under threat, and I don't mean like physical threat, but they the brain doesn't know the difference between real and perceived threat. It can't. It, it's it's so every time it picks up the phone and sees something bad happening in the world, it's that's a that's can be perceived as a threat. Or somebody says something about somebody, that's a threat. They could say that about me. It's this unrelenting hypervigilance. And, you know, you're hearing huge amounts of stories of kids who can't sleep. And um, because what happens with hypervigilance is they start to condition the brain to be hypervigilant all the time. And you can't just at half nine or 10 o'clock at night go, I want to go sleep now. Your brain has just felt kind of rinsed in that red zone constantly. And um, so that is my fear. And if you condition people to be like that all the time, it can, it can feel very anxiety inducing for them and for the, those around them. So that's why I think meditation, like, and it's not me trying to sell meditation. Meditation does the opposite. It gets you out of that amygdala hijack and gets you into this kind of prefrontal cortex of the brain, the brain part of the brain where you're, where, where you start to engage now what you call the, the, um, the kind of parasympathetic nervous response and it's the opposite of hypervigilance. So what I say to some kids, use your phone, see what it feels like to do some breathing. When you when you put your phone down, let's do just one minute of breathing. So start teaching the brain to get back into kind of homeostasis and, and get that kind of relaxation. And maybe that's a good boundary to say, I'll get your phone, but we like there has to be like, and it doesn't, it's not meditation, it's just functional breathing. Like what in for four, out for four. Do in for four, hold for four, out the box breathing, it could be you know, four, seven, eight breathing, breathe in for four, hold for seven, out for eight. Just something. That's a technique that you use every time you put your phone down to get you out of that space and back and present into the body. So, yeah, I do think it's, but I also don't think we should assume that that kids are having a nightmare with all this. Maybe they have adapted. You know, maybe they have. Maybe we don't fully know. I don't for sure. I'm just kind of theorizing here, you know, but... I do think they're adapting much faster than maybe I adapted to technology because it's all they know. True. Yeah. And it's funny, just like to tr bring the focus a little bit onto ourselves, I suppose, for the last few minutes. Um, like a lot of these issues are still very relevant to us, you know, coming from someone who was a teacher who like, you know, used social media kind of rarely or, you know, there was no, no major stress around it to be now being someone who's building an online business. I have found it very hard to find those boundaries, you know, to what time, like, you know, setting those rules for myself to switch off, constantly being hypervigilant um, and learning to, you know, use the techniques. But I think a lot of people are very stressed, you know, sorry, I don't think they feel a lot of people are very stressed and there are a lot of mental health issues kind of, you know, even within adults. Um, so I suppose what I wanted to ask you really is what should, should we be doing? So if there's someone who maybe is suffering from anxiety um, or is just really struggling in general, um, what kind of everyday 
habits can we put in place to maybe even safeguard our mental health? Because I know it's a different thing to treat it to maybe safeguarding if we went down that route. Yeah, I think the first thing you got to do is 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 also is also develop a good relationship with your GP. That's it's so important because there's you know somebody who has really dysfunctional anxiety. There could be physiological reasons for it. Like I like I have friends, you know, things like checking your thyroid, checking your bloods. This stuff part of to me mental and physical health is prevented of everything. Going getting your bloods done, having your medicals as much as you can, like once a year at least. And building that rapport with your GP to understand, to make sure that, you know, it this might be a physiological thing that you're experiencing. But when it comes to anxiety and understanding it first, understand that your brain is not trying to hurt you. It is literally not trying to hurt you. Like, like an overthinking brain is not, it's, it's trying to always protect you. And it just has an awful stupid silly way of showing you sometimes. In the history of humankind, we've never had, the amount of information hitting us every single day. Our brains were not designed for this. Neuroscientists sometimes say we have an old brain for a new world. It's different. So it's like, like I always say, it's like trying to operate like, like brand new software on a Commodore 64. That's what you're trying to do. Your brain is just, it feels overwhelmed by the world. And so what are the things you can do? First, understand the absolutely crucial importance of rest. Rest is the most forgotten about thing in our modern world. It's it's seen as being lazy. It's seen as being lack of ambition. You sit in your arse for five seconds and some lad, and I said, TikTok's giving you shit about it. Getting, you're not going to be successful unless you work. Shut the fuck up for a second. You know, and then you have the people who I really admire, like David Goggins going, I don't rest. Dude, if you didn't rest, you'd be dead. You'd be a dead man. You wouldn't survive. Your body would give up on you. Your brain would... Stop selling that messaging. Understanding that the most successful people on this fucking planet, whether athletes, whether they're, you know, entrepreneurs, whether they're musicians, have understood the only way they can be that successful is to know and to rest. Because you can so only rest. tap into that creative space, can't you? If you're actually had proper rest and been able to kind of switch off. But non-judgmental rest. I mean, sitting yeah. on your hole and doing nothing and not trying to read a book that makes you a better person. Not Watch shit TV that doesn't require your brain to be used. Do shit anything. Lie in the sun and not... Don't You don't always have to better yourself. It's just like, I'm going to read a self-help book because I'm resting. No, don't. Right now, you, de you need to prove nothing to anybody. And you need to bring a big fucking dollop and non-judgment into this as well and just go, right... Go and get a, and and I'm not saying get a reason I'm saying is get away from the phone isn't because oh the phone's gonna it's really bad it's because somebody's gonna tell you that you shouldn't be resting and find out what that rest is for you because it's diff different for me because I'm not a parent so everybody needs a rest whatever it might just be an hour or two or it might be an afternoon on a Sunday or it might be a day on a Sunday if you're if you're lucky but understand that the only way you can be successful is is to rest is to actually recuperate. To, like, for example, I, I go to the gym and I see lads that will train there twice a day, every day for seven days a week. And they're like, oh, I'm not getting the, I'm not getting the gains. I was like, how the fuck are you going to get gains? Where's the gains happening here? Your body's actually giving up on you because you're literally kicking the living shit out of it. And you're getting, like, it's basic maths here, guys. Take a day off. Let the energy systems rebuild. Let the muscles rebuild, let the, you know, get all this going and then go and go again and go hard and go harder the week after. And that's how you build the body. It's the same at academia. If you're in rinsing your brain seven days a week 
And then you sit down on a Monday and wonder why you're not taking anything in because your brain's going, when you piss off, I can't do this. I need a break. So rest is crucial. And that's why holidays, I think, are really important as well. Whatever they are for you, five days rest is just, or even more, if you're lucky enough to be able to get 10 to 14 days of nothing and not, I cannot overemphasize that because it gets the brain out of that hypervigilant state. Yeah. The other things you can do is functional breathing. Some people don't like the idea of meditation and mindfulness. It feels too challenging for them because the modern world has conditioned us to be anything but mindful. It doesn't want you to be mindful because you're in control of your reactions when you're mindful. You won't buy shit. You won't be manipulated when you're mindful because you become really aware of yourself. So mindfulness to me is is a really powerful support, but it has to be evidence-based. So mindfulness-based stress reduction is an eight-week course that you can do online or you can do face-to-face. There's courses all over the country, mindfulness.ie, check them out. That's your evidence base. Um, That's the stuff that you have to commit to the practice and you get get brought through the process. Make sure that it's an accredited teacher. Uh, It's really important that it's accredited teachers because... You know, for me to be able to teach mindfulness, I had to do my master's. It's not a it's a it's a psychological in, in intervention. There's pre-assessments required. There's all this stuff. Um, functional breathing is, to me, the greatest way to calm the body. And it's the simplest way. So functional breathing is the physiological sigh is a really powerful one. And that's two inhales through the nose and a long exhale through the mouth. So. Even doing that there now, I feel a little a little calmer, a little lightheaded. Do three of them. Watch your heart rate. It will drop. Cadence breathing at night. Breathe in for five and out for five. Lower your respiratory rate, six breaths a minute. In for five, out for five. Always through the nose. Always through the nose. Because and out through the nose as well? No, you can breathe out through the nose or mouth. It's whatever. Oh, but in but through, the through the nose. Yeah. Because for many, many different reasons, but you're engaging what they call the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is the only nerve in the body that works from the body up to the brain, which is basically, if you think about it, you're, it's a message to the brain to calm down. So that's the physiological side. Cadence breathing, in for five, out for five. That is basically, as I said, lowering your respiratory rate. And when you lower your respiratory rate, your central nervous system calms. So it's great before you go to bed. You can do it for 10 minutes. So think about what I'm trying to say here. I'm trying to get you out of the hypervigilant state. That's all we're trying to do here and start start to teach yourself what coming out of the hypervision state feels like. The other breathing pattern is the four, seven, eight breath or the tranquilizer breath is what I call in for four, hold for seven, out for eight. Do that 10 times. So rather than accept that anxiety is just something you have to deal with, start learning a toolbox to deal with. them. Because you don't want the anxiety like I don't I'll always be anxious. I don't want to dismiss it. it. It has driven me to do really things I could probably never dream of doing before because I have a, a really strong internal energy in me that's driven from this anxiety. But when it gets too much for me, I know what to do. And I also know what my triggers are. And my triggers are too much news, people who bitch all the time. I, I can't be around that. I just find it sickening and difficult. And then I, I find social media an immense trigger. I think I delete my Twitter account. And then it's so funny, I deleted my Twitter account and people abused me for not telling people I was deleting, deleting my Twitter account. The same people who abuse people when they tell people that they're deleting their Twitter account. Um, it's a cesspit. It's just a cesspit. Yeah. It's algorithms driven around division. It just wants you divided and it just wants you angry. You don't need me to tell you that. 
I've never like I was I I was like I and I had this big Twitter following and my manager was like you can't delete that the record label was like you can't fucking delete that and I went it's the biggest contribution to my misery and I'm getting rid of it and I really think the world would be a far better place if every person did because it's it is a cesspit of toxicity and uh, I think humans are far far better than that yeah that's a really, really amazing place to finish, I think, as well. Um, I just want to ask you one more question before we finish up. What does the word help mean to you? I'd like to ask everyone that. And that it's a very on-the-spot one now, so I'll give you a second to process. Um, health is immensely... So I, I look at health, physical, mental, spiritual. Um, physical health is... Obviously, looking after ourselves, what we put into our body, how we fuel our body, and everyone has a different subjective experience. People have different bodies, different issues with their bodies. So my own physical health is I can control what I eat. I can control what I make my body do if it's not injured. And I put all my energy on that. So these are the things I can do. And I read a brilliant Mike Tyson quote today that he said, discipline is the ability to do the things you hate and pretend you love them. And that to me is, is I think this, that side of things for me is, is, is a, is a non-negotiable. I have to, I have to do that. Exercise is crucially important to my mental health, uh, but I'm not obsessive about my exercise anymore. I don't get angry if I miss sessions. I don't, if I'm tired, I don't do the sessions. I don't batter myself. My mental health is is a little bit more complex. It is very much understanding what my needs are, my, my triggers, understanding that there are days I just won't have it in me and being able to sit back and actually just batten down the hatches when that happens and not try to save the world. I call it the apathy trap. That's what happens to me. I just feel demotivated by the, everything. And when that happens, it's my it's my mind telling me to, to rest. That's what it's doing. And then spiritual health is the deeper stuff. It is your connections with others. It is your relationships. It is the people you love. It is your inner relationship you have, that kind of higher state of consciousness, whatever you want to call it. And ultimately and arguably the most important one, because your relationships are the beating heart of your health and they're the beating heart of your well-being. Even sometimes they're complicated and annoying and frustrating and and difficult. That is where your happiness lies. And I did a a, a pretty cool thing during the pandemic. I went to um all the nursery or the old uh, you know the nursing homes in Mullingar when they, nobody could go into them so we basically brought a band and we just performed out, outside all of them on Christmas day just so they had music and I got to interview them all through the window because I was doing the podcast and I interviewed 55 people in nursing homes and I asked them all the same question what matters in life and they went your family and your relationships and every single one of them probably don't don't have a lot of time left and a lot of them already left the world and in their final days that's all that mattered to them not the fucking bullshit we get bombarded with and take talk not this is the shit you should have in life and this is what you need in life none of that 
my family and my relationships. That's we, we it's the most important thing when you come into the world. And it's the most important thing when you leave the world. But somewhere along the middle, we forget about it. And I think if you can tap into that spirituality of your relationships, you can get through anything. That's the difference. And, you know, as I said, everybody has complicated. I have complicated relationships, but I also have incredible ones that that are really important to me. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so just before we finish up, if um, anyone wants to contact you, obviously, or to to find you online, they all they need to do is Google you, really. But um, where is the best place people want to, you know, maybe hear some of what you have to say or, you know, any of the work you're doing at the minute? Uh, just the Where's My Mind podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I've hundreds of podcasts there about an array of different subjects. And it's funny when you do the work I do, people always go, oh, it's going to be too heavy. It isn't heavy. It's funny. It's irreverent. It's piss takey. Yeah. The human mind is hilarious. Like we need to get away from this idea that the only thing we want to hear when it comes to like emotional well-being is just tell me the fluffy stuff and that we're all great and the inspirational quotes. I don't do that. I'm not a Tony Robbins B team. I just talk about the madness of the ma the mind and the culture we live in. And I'm not going to tell you to be a better version of yourself because that in essence is the problem. We keep telling people they need to be better. And I think sometimes you just need to be comfortable with what you are. I think that is a core part of mental health. Yeah, your podcast is really good, actually. And you all the different, really interesting people that you've interviewed as well. I loved the episode with Deepak Chopra. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. It was, that, was, that, that was a moment for you, I'd say. When you've studied him for two years in your master's and he was he was at the core of my thesis. And then you're sitting on a, a you know, a phone call or a Zoom with him. He was an absolute gentleman. And the other thing with Deepak was like, which was really interesting was like I talked to him about how the pagans in Ireland used to use the land to meditate. That's like, the you know, often in Buddhism or in, in his work, he uses the, the body or the, the, the breaths or the, you know, whatever in terms of the focus of attention. I said the pagans used the land. They would meditate by looking at the lake or they'd meditate by looking at the land. And that Irish kind of mythical spirituality, I think, is a lovely marrying to Buddhism. I think there's a lovely... um kind of power in the fact that we live in one of the most beautiful countries in the world to do that and um, so if you struggle with your breath go out and just look at the sea and just breathe that's what the pagans did that's amazing thanks, thank man. you so much I'll, uh, we'll finish it there and i really really do appreciate you coming on thanks so much no worries i'll see you Bye. soon